Church, please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Malachi chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 2 through 4 this morning. Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. Once you've found your place in the scripture, please stand to your feet as we read God's word this morning. Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. God's word says this. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to understand your word this morning, that by your spirit the text would be illuminated so that we can see Christ in the word, so that we can see uh, what Malachi prophesies of here and how it relates to us today. Lord, your truth, your word is timeless. Scripture tells us that we would do well to pay attention to it until Christ comes again. And so that is what we want to do, Lord. This is your voice. This is you speaking to humanity, you speaking to Israel, you speaking to your church. And so we receive it now, God, but help us to understand it, the depth of it, the richness of it, that we may go away changed, that we, we may go away proclaiming Christ uh, from our lips to the people that need to hear it so that they are ready for when Christ comes again. Lord, be glorified in this now. I pray for those watching online that they would uh, be taking this in as well. For those that are sick, for those that are on vacation, or those that have to work today, Lord, we do ask that you would uh, help them to make time to be able to listen to the stream later and the sermon later so that they may grow along with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon is titled, God's Love for Justice. God's Love for Justice. This is part two. It is subtitled, the visitation of the Lord. The visitation of the Lord. I'm going to tell you a quick story here to help set this up, this passage of Scripture up. When I was in fifth grade, my, my two brothers and my parents and I, we lived in a little tiny home, 734 square feet. This tiny little home was in National City, California. And we lived across the street from a cemetery, a perfect place for young boys to go and play during the day. One day while my parents were out grocery shopping, my brother and I were left home and we got into some mischief as young boys often do. This is the brother that I've told you about before. He's about 10 months younger than me. Somehow, I don't know where it came from, but that day we got the notion that we could somehow take lit matches to grapes and we could turn them into raisins. And uh, it doesn't sound like a very bright idea now. It sounds stupid. But in the mind of a nine-year-old, that sounded brilliant. I'm going to speed up the process of drying out grapes and turn them into raisins. Well, that didn't work out as we tried to do that, so we got the dumber idea to take fire to other items to see what would happen. As a kid, it doesn't take long to get lost in your head, and you're in your own ideas, and you forget that there's a reality at work around you. Then the light bulb went off in my head as a little kid. Mom and Dad are going to be home soon. They're coming back. My brother and I knew that we weren't supposed to be playing with matches and fire. We were told how dangerous it was. We were told that people could be injured and even killed in fires. But at that moment, a foolish experimentation, the reason had gone out the door. 
as often does with little kids, and sometimes that happens with us adults as well. Reason went out the door in my mind until the reality of dad's return sunk into my heart. I knew that we were going to get in deep trouble because we had been forewarned of a punishment if we ever did something like this. And uh, so I figure, well, I'm going to end up in that graveyard one day or another. Maybe today is the day I'll be in that cemetery. Cemetery, And the, the tombstone would read, Here lies Josh and Jason Ritchie, failed experimentists. <laughs> failed, <laughs> failed scientists. All right. So to try and mask the smell of sulfur dioxide in the air, because the whole house stunk of it, I grabbed a can of Lysol from under the kitchen sink, and I ran like Forrest Gump through the house. Right? It was trying to mask the smell of what was obviously in the house, trying to cover my sins. I was hoping to fool my parents. Soon after disinfecting the house, which now smelled like a bowling alley, (laughs) my brother and I heard the family car pull up into the driveway, and we waited for them to come in with the groceries. A few minutes later, my dad sternly asked, which one of you were playing with matches? And like good little sinners, we pointed to each other. We did what Adam and Eve did. I don't have to say that his return home was not one that was welcomed. We received the worst punishment we'd ever received, and we were purged of playing with matches forever. We've been purified and healed of that awful sin. <laughs> and that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> right? I have nothing else to say. I won't tell you what that involved. Now, in Malachi, we are hearing of the account of Malachi telling the people of Israel that the Lord is going to come and visit his temple. There are some things that are seriously wrong in Israel and God is going to come and pay them a visit. And it wouldn't be a pleasant visit, but it would end in some good things for some people, and it would end in horrific judgment for other people. And so as we've been going through Malachi, let me recap some of this for you. We see that we're in a period in which the Israelites have left Babylon. They're free to go back to their homeland. Now they're under Persian rule, and they are free to rebuild their covenant life with God to live according to the Mosaic Covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. Uh, Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, all right? Not Zion, but Mount Sinai. And um, they're free now to live according to the covenant, to live according to the sacrificial system, to rebuild the temple and its foundation, to reinstitute the priestly sacrificial system that pointed the way to Christ, who would be our true sacrifice. So all this is going on. They're free to do this. The, the priesthood is functioning. The temple's rebuilt. But God has some complaints and some problems with Israel. Okay? And that's what the book of Malachi is, a series of six complaints or disputes that God has with Israel. And we've already covered several of them. Problem one, Israel does not believe that God loves them. Israel does not believe that God loves them. In other words, they believe that God has broken covenant with them, that God has failed to do what he promised to do, which is to be their God. Problem two, Israel is the one that does not love in this relationship. Israel does not love God. God proves this to them by showing that they are bringing polluted sacrifices to the priests, and the priests who despise their duties and their job and are complaining about it, they're offering polluted, these polluted sacrifices that are gross. They're offering them to God, thus showing that the people and the priests did not love God. It is Israel who has broken covenant with God. Problem three, 
Israel is again violating covenant with God, but they're not just violating covenant with God. They are being treacherous towards each other. They're breaking covenant with God and with each other. And this is evidenced by their improper marriages. And we talked about marriage for a few weeks and how this pointed the way to Christ, but how this was, um, it was part of their covenant and how they were supposed to live. There were men that were divorcing the women in, in Israel without just cause. There were men that were marrying foreign women who worshipped false idols. Again, this all breaks covenant with God, but they were breaking covenant with each other. And we went in depth how all this relates to Christ and with God's people. Problem four, and this is where we're at now. Israel accuses God of praising evil. The last time I preached, this is what we addressed. Israel accuses God of loving evil, of of not being a just God, and they kind of accuse him of being absent, that he doesn't exist, so to speak. God tells them otherwise. They're complaining that injustice is in the land, and God says, there is a reckoning coming. I will come and visit myself. I will come to the temple and visit myself. And before his visit, the prophet Malachi says that God is going to send a messenger. And we saw that messenger was John the Baptist who would prepare the way for God to come. And God calls this himself, this coming, this person, the messenger of the covenant. God is coming. God is the messenger of the covenant that Malachi tells about. He's coming. And so John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus to come, who would visit the temple and cleanse it. And we talked a little bit about that last time, that Jesus Christ is the messenger of the covenant or the angel of the covenant, because Malachi means, uh, means messenger. I'm sorry, yeah, it means angel as well, right? That's what that, those words mean. In Jesus, we saw he's the one who fulfills the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, its pictures, its types, its shadows, its feasts, its festivals. He... He is pictured in all those things, and he came to do what those things were teaching. He is the one who then completes that and then ushers in and brings in the new covenant of which we are a part of if we are believers in Christ. So Christ was coming to right wrongs in Israel to fix what was broken, to dispense justice, to purify them, all right, and do that so that he could complete the old covenant and bring in in the new And so we're going to press further into this fourth problem today, this fourth issue that God has with Israel. This is part two of this fourth problem, and there will be a part three in the next time I preach. God loves justice, church. God loves holiness and righteousness and that which is right. And that requires a visit from him, not just to Israel, as we're going to see here, but it requires a visit to all of humanity, which is coming in Christ's second return, as we'll see later, okay? And so the main point that we're going to get out of today, normally I have three or four points in the sermon. Today I decided we're just going to keep it one point, all right? God's justice requires that he visits his sinful people to purify them. That is the main point of our text today. God's justice, his love for justice, requires that he visits his sinful people in order to purify them and remove sin from them. Last time I preached, we covered chapter 2, verse 17, and then we covered verse 1 of chapter 3. This is all part of one section, even though it looks broken up a little bit different in your Bibles. But in that passage, in the last sermon, the Lord tells Israel this. Let me help you remember this. uh, Through Malachi, God tells them that they have exhausted him with their words. God is exhausted, frustrated, irritated by their words. 
They accuse God of praising evil and lacking justice. God promises once again to send a messenger, that is John the Baptist, that will prepare the way for someone called the messenger of the covenant, who is God himself. That messenger of the covenant, he was going to come to the temple and make a personal visit, and we saw that this is Jesus. And for a moment, before we get into our text, I want to help you share some really amazing truths from Scripture to help you see this point that God, that his, his holiness, his justice requires a visit to his people in order to purify them. Okay, So I want to show you something in Scripture. Prior, Remember, we're in the second temple era here, okay, where the temple was destroyed and it's been rebuilt. There's a second temple here in Malachi. And remember that prior to the second temple, there was a first temple prior, that was made by Solomon. Prior to the first temple, there was a tabernacle this tent that went with Israel everywhere that they went in the wilderness. Prior to this tabernacle was a place called the Tent of Meeting, which where God met with Moses. And then prior to the Tent of Meeting, I just want to take you back to the Garden of Eden. And I want to show you some things. The Garden of Eden. God was in the garden with Adam and Eve. And I want to explain to you that God's presence was on this planet with humanity. God has always desired to live on this planet with humanity. And we see that evidenced in the beginning of the story of Scripture with God in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. But then we saw that the the fall happens, right? Sin happens. They're kicked out of the presence of God. And then it seems like God is here and not here at times through manifestations. But let's walk through some of this. God was in Eden, and now they're kicked out of God's presence because of sin. When you fast forward to the time of Israel in the wilderness, okay, Moses built a place called the Tent of Meeting. It was a smaller tent. It wasn't like the tabernacle. But in the Tent of Meeting, God would meet with Moses. And Scripture says the Lord would descend in a cloud at the entrance of this tent and meet with Moses. God's presence on earth was there, meeting with his people. Exodus 33, you'll find that in verses 10 through 11. God visits his people. When the tabernacle was made, this is the next phase of God meeting with his people. When the tabernacle was made, we see the same thing transpiring. The Lord's presence visited the tent of meeting and the tabernacle, and we see that at the end of Exodus. Okay, A cloud, Scripture says, covered them both, and God's glory filled the tabernacle, his physical presence was there. God was with his people. When the tabernacle was later replaced by a permanent building, that's the first temple. King Solomon had barely finished his prayer of dedication for the temple. We see that in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. And we're going we're gonna to sing a song at the end of the service that reminds us of that passage of Scripture. Okay? He had barely finished his prayer of dedication for the temple when fire shot down from heaven, consumed the sacrifice on the altar, and Scripture says that the glory of the Lord filled this temple. Once again, God visiting his people. His presence is there. Okay? The Lord visits his people. So far, you'll have noticed this pattern, right? The Lord is present in creation, in the, tent of, in the garden, in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle, in the first temple. And now we're in Malachi in the era of the second temple. And you know what hasn't happened yet? What hasn't happened? 
There's been no physical manifestation of the presence of God with his people. Let's hit pause on this second temple era right here, okay? Just hit pause because we're going to move forward to something glorious here. I want you to skip forward to the day that the church is born. Christ has ascended to heaven. It says, go wait in Jerusalem until he sends the Spirit. Fifty days later, it's the day of Pentecost. The church is called what? The temple of God. What do you think will happen if we've seen this pattern of God visiting his people? Well, on the day of Pentecost, what happens when the church is born? When the temple is born, the spiritual temple of God, what happens? The Holy Spirit visits the church. He comes upon the church. God visits his temple, and he indwelled his people. And Scripture says, tongues of fire appeared on everyone in Acts chapter 2. God dwells on earth now. In who? In us. And everywhere you go, Christians, believers all over this planet, the temple of God is all over this planet. It has always been God's intent to live on this planet with his people. So wherever we are, God is present in us. So far, we are seeing how it is that God dwells on earth with his people, how heaven and earth meet, okay? how God and humanity meet. Now I want you to fast forward to our final state, our final state in Revelation 21, the new creation. Heaven, the new heaven has come down to the new earth. And what do we see? Well, we see that there's no temple in this planet. Scripture actually says that God is the temple in this case. His presence is fully on earth. God is dwelling with saved and redeemed humanity on earth, living with us, like he did with Adam and Eve at first prior to the fall. Okay? It's always been God's plan to live on earth with sinless humanity that rightly bears his image and his likeness. That's why he created us, and that's why he told us to fill this earth. We're supposed to, but prior to the fall, have filled the earth with God's perfect, perfect image and likeness so that God's glory is filled. And it's like Scripture's telling us at the end, God is all over this planet. That's what he wants most. His glory displayed in this world in the midst of his people. These manifestations of God visiting at the beginning of creation, and we see the the tent of meeting and the tabernacle and the temple, they're there to teach us that God will dwell with his people forever. But right now, people are separated from God because of sin, because of unrighteousness, because of wickedness and disobedience and rebellion. So his visiting and indwelling the church, this current temple, it tells us that that what is impossible to be able to live before God and stand before him is now possible because he is making a restoration and a salvation and a purification that makes it possible for him to live with his people. Are you following? Are you tracking me? Because in all the previous situations we see, God's presence separated from humanity in the garden. The tent of meeting, there's a separation. In the tabernacle, God is separated from the people in the Holy of Holies. The same thing with the temple in the second temple. All that shows separation from God and his people because of their sin. And Christ comes and rips that temple veil in half and provides access to us to live with God. And now he dwells in us. It's an amazing story that we see in scripture. Indeed, now we see that salvation, restoration, and reconciliation are happening. But there's a fullness coming. There's a further purification coming for God's people. Indeed, we now experience the real presence of God living in us. And I find that amazing. That God would dwell with people like us. God actually lives within us. 
He is here now. Maybe you're waiting for a tickling sensation to roll up your spine or for your eyelid to start twitching to know that God is with you. You don't need that. All you need is God's word to tell you that he is living with his people, and it is so. Okay? And so that's why we sing to God, and we worship God, and we praise him, and we pray to him, and we take communion to give glory to the one who lives within us. And that's why we listen to his word. This is all worship. This is all giving God glory. And the Lord lives in the temple he created, not one made by human hands. The future presence of God is coming to this planet like never before, a restored creation. And again, it's always been God's intent to live with humanity on this planet. Sin ruined it. God will fix that. Now, let's go back to the second temple. We see that in the days of Malachi, the physical presence of God has not visited the temple. Yet God promises to visit himself, thus completing the link in where we are in human history, that he visits his people in all these different phases. And so we see God coming, not in a cloud. God's not coming in fire. He's coming in human skin this time. The Lord was coming to his temple. The messenger of the covenant is coming to fix the old covenant in order to fulfill it so that he can usher in the new covenant. Again, this messenger was God. This messenger is Jesus Christ. So in today's text, I want you to get this, that Malachi is making the point that Jesus is coming to refine the priesthood, to purify it. All right, Verse 5, which we didn't get in today, there's a judgment coming to those who will not repent, whether it be priests or people. But right now he's coming to refine the priesthood, to purify it, to purify the sacrifices because they were offering polluted sacrifices. He's going to fix what they're doing wrong, and he's going to purify a remnant of Israelites. But he's also coming to judge those who continue to break covenant with God. So there's two parts to this coming. There's a salvation part, and there's a judgment part. There's a purging, and there's a punishment that we're going to see in the next sermon, the second half. Okay? From later in Scripture, we see that the Lord is coming again. And we see that based on what we're reading in Malachi, Malachi is describing the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. What Malachi didn't know is that there were two phases to this coming, and he may not have understood that fully, his first and second coming. To Malachi and the Israelites, when Malachi speaks, it seems like one event, one event. I'm going to explain this to you. This is called prophetic perspective, okay, prophetic perspective. I'm going to make sense of this term if you've never heard it before. This means this, from the prophet's point of view, Malachi's point of view, it seems that he either wasn't concerned in giving all the details of what the coming of the Lord looked like and parsing it out in great detail, or it could be that he may not have known the fullness in which the Lord intended this prophecy uh, to communicate. He didn't understand it all. He's saying what God said, and he just sees the coming of the Lord. And either he didn't give all the details, or he may not have understood the fullness of the coming of the Lord. What they knew was true, that the messenger of the covenant was coming, but maybe its fullness was not there in their minds. It would be like, and, and theologians often use this illustration because I think it fits perfect, but it would be like looking at a mountain range from a distance. And because it's so far, you just see one big brown smeared mountain range, right? You just, it, it looks like one massive mountain. But as you draw closer, 
There's a little more clarity. You see, oh, there's a hill here. And then there's a bigger mountain here. Oh, and then one before it. Oh, and the big one is way in the back. As you get closer, you have a better perspective that there's many hills and valleys, right? Just like we know that there are, uh, there are many antichrists until a final antichrist, okay? There are many judgments in Scripture until the final judgment. So, too, there was a coming of Christ before the final coming. It's all about prophetic perspective, okay? It didn't mean that what Malachi said was untrue. He just didn't know the fullness of it or may not have known, okay? First coming leading to a final coming. It'd be like me taking you out to dinner and say, hey, we're going to have dinner tonight. But then we have appetizers, and then we have a salad, and then we have dinner, and then we have, uh, what's at the end? When you're too stuffed, you can't eat, all right? Dessert, and you still order it, all right? Gluttons, that's what we are. And that's what I am, at least. I shouldn't accuse you of that, because I don't know, all right? But anyway, you have, you have prophetic perspective illustrated there. I told you we're going to dinner, but I had much more in mind. And you were like, wow, that was awesome. We had some really tasty appetizers, and dessert was amazing. So this is kind of what's going on here. The Lord's saying something, and there's a fullness to it, okay? So what was the messenger of the covenant going to do when he arrived? Again, we're bridging last sermon with this one. When God showed up to the temple, what was going to happen? Well, first of all, let's answer a couple of questions regarding God's arrival, right? The scripture starts off with two rhetorical questions linked into one sentence. Scripture says this, Who can endure the day of his coming? Or who will endure the day when he comes? Who will endure the day when he comes? Meaning this is a future event for Israel going on here. Okay, This doesn't sound pleasant, does it? Who is the one who can remain standing when God comes to his temple? Who is the one that can remain standing? The rhetorical questions with obvious answers. The answer is no one can stand. No one can endure unless God somehow permits them to. Unless God enables them to. The only one, Scripture says, the only one who may stand in God's presence is someone who is totally perfect. Psalm 24.4 tells us that the only one who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may approach God's presence, is someone who is, has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands, never done anything wrong and a, with their body, and a clean heart, never thought anything bad. Who... Who here among us has that sort of holiness and purity? Raise your hand. Nope, mine's coming right back down. None of us here have that. I don't have that kind of holiness. I do not have perfection. The only one that does is Jesus Christ. And so we are incapable of standing before God because of our sin. That means a visit from him requires a purifying, a removal of sin, okay? And that's the response that should be evoked in the ears of the Israelites and priests, and us as well. No one can endure his coming. No one can stand. But there is good news on the other side of these rhetorical questions. God's coming is to put to rest the false notion that God loves evil and that he does not punish evil, making him unjust, if that were the case. In his coming, in Jesus' coming, he's going to refine like fire and like a fuller or launderer's soap. In the process of purifying precious metals, I don't do this kind of work, but I had to read up on it. The metal is heated, and maybe you've seen this on YouTube, it's melted, impurities are burnt away, and some of the impurities go up in smoke. They're just destroyed. 
Some impurities are too large to burn up, so they end up floating to the top of the liquid metal. This is called slag, and it's scooped from the top, and when it hardens, it's called dross. This is how precious metals like silver and gold are purified and refined. It's important to grasp this concept that fire both purifies and fire also destroys. There's an overlapping of purity by destruction. Okay? Both happen. Scripture says that our God is a consuming what? Fire. He purifies by destroying impurities in our life. And sometimes he destroys. In other words, sometimes he saves people by removing sin, purifying, removing sin, and sometimes he judges sinners. And so the full passage of Scripture that we're looking at, we're only looking at the first part, the purity part, the purification part. Next sermon, again, we'll talk about the judgment part in verse 5. But our God is a consuming fire. Who is purified in this initial part of the passage? Scripture says who? The sons of Levi. We're going to come back to them in a second. But it's not only the fire that describes the Lord's purification process. Malachi says that the message of the covenant is like a fuller's soap or a launderer's soap. Now, in the process of purifying precious metals, uh, lye or potash or soap was sometimes used. The kind of synonyms there. It was used to, these substances were used to help create chemical reactions within the melted metal. It helped separate the slag from the precious metal. And so, in metallurgy, in this refining process, there's a two-part process. The burning up through melted, uh, the metal being melted and heated up. And then there's the lye or the potash, the soap that's put in there to help separate the slag from the precious metal. So Malachi could very well be describing the two-part process of refining metal. Or he could be describing the bleaching process and cleaning uh, process uh, when it comes to clothes like we wear, like detergent, Okay. If you don't know what lie is, I had to look that up too, um, other than when you're fibbing, totally different word. But different kinds of lie are used in soap. Lie causes a chemical reaction to take place. So now we're going back to high school chemistry, okay? When chemical reactions take place, things happen. Sometimes bubbles, you know, explode. If you've ever seen uh, the Mentos dropped into a soda, that's a chemical reaction. Two different substances coming together and creating a reaction. Well, lye gives electrons to materials. This creates heat in those materials, which makes grease thinner and it loosens up. And so that when you put hot water to it, it rinses away from your clothes. I didn't know that that's how that stuff worked. I, I just thought it made clothes smell clean because <laughs> the kind of detergent I seem to use uh, doesn't get the stains out of my clothes. Uh, maybe I'm just eating really disgusting food, right? That's probably it. Now, other names for lye might be sodium hydroxide or potassium hydroxide. Potassium, that's where the word potash comes from. So some of your Bibles, the translation might say potash. Now, whether Malachi, again, is speaking of the laundry process or the two-part process of purifying precious metals, the idea of purification and cleansing is completely in view. So it doesn't really matter which way this goes. So we move on now to the next part of Scripture. So not only is Jesus going to be like fire, purifying people from sin and later destroying sinners in order to make something uh, more precious in one group, 
all right? But Scripture here says he'll be like light, all right? Um, he's going to be like the refiner, okay? The refiner, the one who is sitting at the melted metal, monitoring it, removing impurities as they rise to the top. So not only is he the, the lie, not only is he the fire, all right, the cleansing agents and the cleansing process, but he's the one monitoring it all. And when he sees sin, scoops it out. When he sees an impurity, removes it. That's what Jesus is doing, paying close attention to the Levites, to the sacrifices, to the citizens of Israel, who eventually will bridge this to us. Okay, So he's, a, he's the artisan sitting carefully over the melted metal, monitoring everything. That's what Malachi says. And what is he doing? The whole point of this refining process is to craft something beautiful out of something that's not beautiful. Right? That, that's, that's what he's talking about here when you read the rest of this part of Scripture. Malachi says that Jesus is going to come and purify, not destroy, but purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold or silver. So this purifying process is for this group of people. This is not destruction or judgment, but it's a fire that purifies. The result is to have something pure like gold or silver. Now, I might just add quickly that this is how God deals with us. He cleanses us, he purifies us, and aren't you glad that we are not slated for destruction? That he purifies us by his son's death and resurrection. Because Christ lived a perfect life, because he died in our place, and because he rose again through faith in what Christ has done for us, our sins are removed, and his righteousness is credited to us, so that now God declares us not guilty. He declares us righteous in his eyes, thus we are purified. And God may now dwell in us. There is a future purging coming, glorification, we'll get to that in a little bit, but that is how God has dwelt with us. His spirit lives in us. His Spirit now dwells in us. And what does the Holy Spirit help us to be? Starts with an H, right before Spirit. He helps us to be holy. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. By taking God's Word, which, which sanctifies us and helps to remove sin from us, He removes that, and we become more like Christ, more holy, more and more precious and sin-free. That's what He does. And again, There's a future salvation coming, glorification, in which our bodies are changed and we will never, ever, ever sin again. A final purging coming. So this is what the Lord does when he visits his people. He refines and purifies instead of condemning and judging. What a good Savior we serve in worship, church. What a blessed Savior we serve. You are are precious to God. Can you take that in for a moment? That he loves us and he purifies us instead of judging us. That is what our Lord does. Now, what sense is Jesus going to purify the sons of Levi? In what sense is Jesus going to purify the sons of Levi? And is it going to be at his first or second coming? Because Malachi, remember, he kind of blurs the lines between the two. How is he going to purify the sons of Levi? In what sense? And is it going to be at his first or second coming? Yes, exactly. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because this is a little... This is very rich. This is, I was lost in excitement as I was digging into these things this week. Here's where Scripture blossoms on levels that take us much deeper than Malachi may have fully known. Like the prophetic, uh, prophetic perspective of the day of the Lord, 
it's very likely that there are multiple layers here that are going on that Malachi may not have been aware of. There's a temporal situation in Israel that's being addressed, and there are other things that may come about in the future from Malachi's perspective that would bring on a fuller understanding of this text. So hang on with me, because here we go. Now, I, I, read, I read 15 commentaries on this particular uh, passage because I had some questions, and, um, and I went digging in Scripture, and I wanted to see what other... Um, what theologians had to say. I was going to say other smart people, but that would have lumped me in there, and I didn't want to do that, okay? But I saw, I saw what these very smart people had to say about this, and believe it or not, most people do not want to speculate on these, on these questions. And what is meant by Jesus refining the sons of Levi? When Jesus says, or when Malachi says, the sons of Levi are going to be refined, in what way and when? Only a few commentaries dared to tackle the subject. And I was intrigued by Malachi's words. That kept, I kept asking the question, how is he going to do that? And in what way? And when? And so I just had to keep pressing into the scripture. And that's what I wanted to know. Who are the Levites? What, is, what does he mean by them? And when would Jesus purify them? And how would Jesus purify them? As I taught in an earlier sermon, it seems that Malachi is using the term sons of Levi, that particular phrase, to refer to the entire tribe of Levi. Both priests and temple servants. Both priests and temple servants all came from the tribe of Levi. Both groups came from this tribe. The priests, they came from a particular family or a particular clan within Levi. They came from Aaron's clan. That's where all the priests and the high priests came from. The rest of the servants came from the rest of the clans or the rest of the families of the tribe of Levi. But they all gave their lives in service to God in the temple service. Now, I'm going to present to you four different views on what is meant by the sons of Levi being purified. And keep in mind prophetic perspective that there's likely multiple layers in which the Lord is going to purify here. There's some people who think that this purifying of the sons of Levi happened, past tense, at the first coming of Christ. And there's some people who think this happens at the second coming of Christ. Remember in Malachi's day, what's the situation? Uh, citizens offered defiled sacrifices to God. Sinful and lazy priests polluted the altar and the temple of God by not inspecting these sacrifices, and God was displeased. The entire situation needed cleansing and purifying. People and sacrifices needed, sacrifice, uh, needed cleansing, but so did the priests and the sanctuary. People and sacrifices, priests and sanctuary. It all needed cleansing. It was all polluted because they hated God and they showed they hated God by offering nasty sacrifices, thus saying, God, this is what we think of you. This is what we think you're worth. So when Jesus came in person at his first coming, as Malachi foretold, what did Jesus do? He cleansed the temple. From what? From the thieves? He overturned the money changers' tables. Scripture says he also drove out those who bought sacrifices, those who were selling and those who were buying. Okay, That's what happened when Jesus came the very first time. So his displeasure was with both seller and buyer. And he said that his father's house would be called, was to be called a house of prayer. But they made it a den of thieves. So there was a purifying that took place in an immediate level when he cleansed the temple. And he likely did that twice. In the book of Acts... We see in chapter 6, verse 7, it says that a number of disciples, Israelites, believed, right? The disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, 
And then it says a great many number of priests became obedient to the faith. A great many number. So in Israel, we have now a remnant of those who are saved. And we now have a remnant of priests that are saved. And what is Malachi showing us? That guy, he's going to refine the priesthood. He's going to refine the citizens. But then in verse 5, which we'll get to in another sermon again, he's going to judge those who won't repent. So, of course, not everybody will be refined. Not everybody will be saved. And so what do we read in Acts? That many Jews believed, but also many priests, both Jews and priests, responded rightly to who? To the messenger of the covenant who came to cleanse, as John the Baptist prepared the way for him to come. And so it seems in some sense that Jesus purified Israel and Israelites, sacrifices by saying you're doing this all wrong, in the temple during his first visit, God came to earth. Jesus visited the temple, as Malachi foretold. His presence was here during his life on earth. God's presence was. And now, as you read the rest of verse 3 in Malachi, you see that the purpose of God's visit to the temple was to restore and fix the Old Covenant. So Malachi definitely has in mind fixing the Old Covenant, fixing the uh, temple and the priestly and the sacrificial and the citizen situation there because it's all corrupt. Okay, That's what Malachi has in mind. God refining the priest and citizen so that they would bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. When the hearts of the nation were right in worship, which would mean they would bring right offerings to the priests, if the citizens had heart rights, or had right hearts, they would bring proper sacrifices to the priests. And if the priests had right hearts, they would then take the sacrifices and offer them appropriately up to the Lord. Okay? Just like things were in the former days when Israel was doing this correctly. So God's word to Malachi has in view how, how things used to be with the citizens and the priests of Israel in the temple worship. And he has in mind a restoration of that, a fixing of that. Malachi sees the current bad situation and says the messengers of the covenant, messengers of the covenant is coming to purify, to fix, to fix it. Why? So that it would stay forever? No. Not so that it would stay forever, but so that it could be fulfilled in Christ. And so that Christ would bring in the new covenant. And that would be ushered in. In other words, Christ is fixing it in order to complete it so that now we move on to the new covenant. And so the old covenant had to be fixed. Christ would complete it. Jesus fixed what was wrong. And now we're in the new covenant. And so God came to his temple, just like he promised, just like we saw in previous tabernacle and temple and tents and Garden of Eden situations. So some people view Jesus' temple cleansing and the conversion of the initial Jews and the many priests some people view this as a fulfillment of what Matthew, I'm sorry, of what Malachi is telling us that Jesus did refine, okay, at his first coming. Again, a second reckoning is coming, but we see a fulfillment in Matthew, uh, in the Gospels, of where Jesus refined the temple and the priesthood and the citizens, okay? Restoring to some, reckoning to others. And this has echoes of the Lord's return, okay? that he is coming again a second time to finalize these things. Now, this refining, that's level one. This refining doesn't stop here. With Jesus having fixed the problem in Israel by purifying the remnant of citizens and priests, the Old Covenant, again, is closed out. But it goes further. How, how else was, were those things cleansed? 
Okay? Well, the scripture says that Jesus became our great high priest. And the sacrifice that he offered was not a polluted one, but he offered a pure one of his own life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus comes, Scripture says, and is true Israel. Okay? So Jesus, this is another way in which that situation was purged, okay, and purified. Jesus offers what the citizens failed to do, because what were they offering? Nasty sacrifices, right? Jesus then comes and offers himself. So now that you're going to offer disgusting things, I'm going to come in your place and do what you all should have done. I'm going to offer myself, okay? This is what he does with a right heart. He does what the citizens failed to do, offering his own life as a perfect sacrifice. But he's not just the perfect citizen of Israel. He's not just the perfect sacrifice offered to God. He's also the perfect high priest that mediates between God and man. When Jesus, uh, when Malachi looked at the, the priests in his day, he said that they were lazy, that they were failed messengers, that they despised the Lord, that they were breaking covenant as well. They were just horrible representatives and mediators between God and man. And so Jesus is, is, is the great high priest who replaces them. You guys aren't going to do what you're supposed to do. Get out of the way. I will do what you're supposed to do. Not just citizen, not just sacrifice, not just priest, but the temple's polluted too. And so Jesus came to be all of those things. One covenant replacing another. One law replacing another. One priesthood replaced by Jesus' priesthood. One sacrifice, uh, nasty sacrifices replaced by Jesus' sacrifice. Priesthood replaced by his higher priesthood because he's after a different order of priesthood, Hebrews tells us. He replaces the pictures and the failed uh, responsibilities and failed actions of all that we see in Malachi and he fulfills them in perfection, in perfection, okay? He's ultimate Israel, ultimate sacrifice, ultimate high priest, ultimate temple. And so there's a deeper sense in which the priesthood was completely cleansed along with the sacrificial system, along with Israel, and that he is true Israel, and along with the temple. Jesus supersedes them all in perfection. And what does this do? This pleases and this honors God, just like the Levites and the Israelites did in former years and way past history when they did things right. Jesus comes and does it again. And this system was refined by his stepping in place of it all. And so in Jesus' first coming, some believe that the messengers of the covenant came to fulfill the old covenant like this. And in fulfilling the old covenant, he brought in the new with its reality that the old is made obsolete, as Hebrews tells us, and the new is here. And surely Jesus did that. But did Malachi have more in mind? He may not have. He may have just had the first situation in mind, not knowing that Jesus was going to come and do more. Again, prophetic perspective. Now there's a third way in which Jesus may have cleansed the sons of Levi during his visit. Sons of Levi, it means that. Descendants of the tribe of Levi. But there are times in the Old Testament when the high priest, this one guy, represented all the priests. And then all the priests represented all the citizens of Israel, who is a priestly nation. Okay? 
So this may be a representative type view in here. The whole nation of Israel was a priestly nation standing between God and the rest of the nations, helping the world to know how they can be reconciled to God. There's a sin that deserves a punishment, but there can be a reconciliation through a sacrifice, which ultimately points the way to Christ. So there's this representative view of the priesthood that extends to Israel. This may also be what Malachi has in mind, or it may not, okay? Maybe citizens as well. But here's what the New Testament teaches us. The New Testament teaches us that we Gentiles, if we're not Jewish, we're Gentile, that we are grafted into believing Israel. We are grafted in to believing Israel when we believe in the same Messiah that they have. Having been grafted in spiritually, we are then called a holy nation and a royal, what? Priesthood. And through Christ, we are all what? Purged of sin and cleansed now. All right? That's, that's justification. Okay? There's a cleansing that takes place now and a cleansing that is coming. Salvation, if you didn't know, is multi-layered. Okay? We are saved now. Are we going to be saved? Yes. But I thought we're saved now. It's multi-layered. There's past salvation, present salvation, and future salvation. We are saved from condemnation. That's justification. Right now, we are being saved from the desire to sin with the Holy Spirit living in us. That's called sanctification, present salvation. There's future salvation coming in which we are transformed once again and our bodies will never sin again. That salvation is still yet to come. Future grace still coming. Glorification. Steve, uh, Pastor Steve was not here today. Pray for him. He's on a military assignment in an undisclosed location. All right. John Weigel and I, on Wednesday, we were talking about all of this and how we'll have new bodies that will never sin uh, and the salvation that we're experiencing. And one of the things that Steve said, um, he said, it's amazing that when we were younger, we were taught like a one-dimensional salvation. You're not going to hell. That's what salvation's about. Or you want to go to heaven, right? As if heaven is our final destination. When scripture says, no, this new creation is our final destination with a new heaven coming down on earth and God dwelling here. We were taught a very limited scope of salvation. And over the past several decades, many inroads have been made in opening up the gospel in its fullness so that we have a much richer understanding of what God intends to do through salvation. As if God saved us to get us to heaven or God saved us to keep us from hell when the point of God saving us is to bring us to himself. That is much deeper and richer than just having a cool vacation home for all eternity or, or having a, a horrible place in the high desert to live for all the rest of your lives, okay? Salvation is much more rich. I didn't, I didn't understand salvation. I, I just thought salvation was, I don't want to go to hell when I was young, and I definitely want to go to heaven because this one sounds better than the other, and I never saw God as my high reward of him reconciling me to himself. And so we were talking about how over the past several decades, salvation has been explained better from Scripture and is much more rich. Now, please understand in Scripture that we have this tension. Scripture has a lot of tensions in them. Uh, We call it the already and the not yet. Already and the not yet. We are saved Already, and we're going to be saved. There's an aspect in which we have not been saved yet. Already, and a yet to come. The kingdom of God is here, but you know what is coming in a fuller sense and completeness? The kingdom of God. It's still coming, even though it's here. The same is true of the priesthood. You and I, if we've been grafted into Israel now, we are a priesthood now. 
There's a fuller sense coming in the second coming of Christ, a not yet fullness. Right now, we have been saved, grafted in. As such, we offer a different kind of praise and sacrifice that is truly pleasing to God. So this is where in this third view. Remember how Malachi said that the restoration of the old covenant, fixing of Israel's sin problems, it would lead to pleasing sacrifices that would honor God and please him like the old days? Hebrews 13 tells us this, that we await the city to come. We await it. The city of God, the new Jerusalem. And through Jesus, through him, through him, we offer up sacrifices of praise to God, not sacrifices of animals, sacrifices of praise that come from the fruit, all right? It's the fruit of lips that acknowledge him. It is the result, this praise is the result of acknowledging Jesus as Savior, that it stirs in us this love for God and what he has done in saving us and Jesus through Jesus' sacrifice, and it causes us to praise him for that. It's a very specific kind of praise. In other words, those of us who truly call on Jesus as Lord and Savior acknowledge that he is our sacrifice. Okay? And we offer up praise to God, and we offer up good deeds to God as a result of that, in relation to that, sacrifices of generosity, because God was generous to us. This pleases God. This is pure worship, Hebrews tells us. So as priests, okay, Hebrews is, is using a similar language like, like that of Malachi. These kind of offerings and praises please God. God's point in Malachi is to fix the problem there so that a priestly nation could offer proper praises to God. Romans 12 tells us that we are to offer up our lives as what kind of sacrifices? Living, not dead, just as Jesus did. Remember why we were created? We were created to continually live in perfection to, uh, towards God, offering up our lives to God in obedience as living sacrifices we weren't, we weren't supposed to die, but live for him forever. And this pleases God because it gives proper homage and worship to his image and his likeness. Jesus came to do that because we failed. And so he did what the first Adam failed to do. He lived in perfection as the second Adam. He did for us what we didn't do. And when we trust in him to save us, through his death and resurrection, we are refined and we are purified. And we offer up praise to his name for what he has done to save us. Church, that's pure worship. In our worship, and maybe you, you forget, maybe you forget that you're a priest of God. I hope today's sermon reminds you of what your duty is here on earth. Okay? You are a priest of God. Okay? You are a priest. We present Jesus to God in worship. Did you hear that? We lift him up and we say, he's the perfect one. He's the perfect sacrifice. I, ha I have nothing. God, I can't bring you anything. <laughs> Jesus is all I have. And we offer a praise to him. And we trust him and we call upon him. And this pleases God as we properly praise Jesus. Remember, this praise is in connection to acknowledging that he is our Savior. That's the sort of worship that honors and pleases God like the days of Israel, the old days. It's not just that, though. It's our good works. It's our good works that reflect God's good nature. These are right and pure sacrifices. So this could be the fuller sense in which God intended to purify the sons of Levi as we are priests grafted into that remnant priesthood. We declare Jesus to be the perfect one, offering up praise to God. 
The priesthood right now, we're imperfect. We're being purged, aren't we? Through Jesus' visit when he left, who did he send? He sent he sent his replacement, the Spirit, who's now purifying us. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us. So who's watching over our refining right now? Jesus. Do you see how Malachi could could be saying one thing about temporal Israel, but God could have so much more on the plate for us, and we didn't even know it? The Spirit lives in us, purging us from sin. This is good news. We're experiencing what Malachi is saying. There's a fuller sense of this priesthood coming when Jesus comes the second time, church. There's, a, there's, a, a not, there's an already and a not yet that is come, coming. Remember when Steve taught through Revelation chapter 20? He taught that those who experience the first resurrection will be made priests. And you're like, but wait, I thought we are priests. Yes, we are. But we're going to be made priests. Yes, we are. There's an already not yet. There's this tension We will reign with the Lord and we will serve him as priests. So there's this sense in which Malachi's purification of the sons of Levi could very well be pointing to this fuller sense. The first visit and the second visit, a purifying of his people. Malachi could still be pointing to both of these things. So that's the third view. And then there's some, and this last one's quick, there's some uh, some people who think that Malachi's refining process refers to the Levitical priesthood and that alone. Only the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priesthood that some people believe will take place in the millennial reign when Christ comes again. Ezekiel 40, chapter 40 through chapter 48, speak of a new temple and a new priesthood. Now, there's some people that think this is uh, referring to the church and believers. And there are some people that think this is going to refer to a physically rebuilt temple with a restored priesthood from a priestly line. Okay, this debate on this topic it goes deep. Some people think it's figurative. Some people think it's literal. Um, we're not going to be able to get into all that today. But again, the, the point is this, that many people believe that during the thousand-year millennial reign that an actual Levitical priesthood that we read of in Malachi is going to be restored, totally purified, and that they're going to resume sacrificial offerings to God that commemorate the Lord's death. Just like when we take communion, it commemorates the Lord's death. So too, there are some that believe the Israel now, because they don't participate in the Lord's Supper because of their unbelief, that one day through a revitalization and a salvation through Israel, the priesthood will be restored, and then there will be sacrifices offered in a memorial way to the Lord, reminding us of Jesus' death for us. Now, which, would be, which we assume, according to Malachi, if that's what Malachi has in mind, and if that actually happens, then we will see that done with right hearts, like in the old days of Israel, with right sacrifices. So we got these four views of refining, okay? Some people think they happened at the first coming of Christ. Some people think they can only happen at the second coming of Christ. If the first coming of Christ, they can only happen, that means people that think the second coming view is the way they're supposed to happen, well, then they can't be right. And if it's switched, well, one or other has to be right. And some people take this hard-line stance that, no, it's this one, no, it's this one. I'm telling you that Scripture allows for a fluidity of these things. Because if you listen to the way that Scripture talks, it talks about all these things, does it not? And they're all connected to Christ. And because of prophetic perspective and because of progressive revelation, progressive revelation is just that God... Remember when the promise of the Messiah was going to happen in Genesis 3.15, one of you's seed? Did we have the entire story there of what Jesus would do? No, it's just a seed that blossoms as a flower and just opens up 
It's beautiful as you see the revelation of God open and expand with more details. Well, this very well could be the case here. Through progressive revelation, we see God had more in mind than what he was initially talking about in Malachi. He had it in mind, but maybe the people that received that only had just a small seed of what the Lord was talking about. And so it's, I say this because it's very important to leave some humility in your heart. Humility in your heart because we see that Israel didn't quite have their eschatology or their end times theology right in regards to the coming of the Lord. Israel thought that when Jesus would come, and they trust me, they longed for this messianic age, that he was going to be a geopolitical ruler, right? Lord, when's your, is this the time of your kingdom? Are, are you going to restore Israel to its proper place in the world as premier nation, as your chosen people? Are we going to get to sit at your right hand? Which one of like they, they were all about that right then and there. They wanted to be relieved of Roman oppression. And these people in Malachi's day, they wanted to be relieved from a, a Persian rule. And guess what? Before that, it was the Babylonian rule. And before that, it was the Assyrian. And before that, the Egyptians. And it's like, man, when are we going to be established? When's the Messiah going to come and make us the top dog nation? And, and they, they were waiting for the coming of the Lord. So they, they had some things wrong. And they didn't know that the coming of the Lord was going to happen in two phases. So, and they had God visiting them. My goodness. Physical manifestations of God. Miracles. And they still had things wrong. So I'm telling you this, that when we read passages like this and see, wow, God's word could allow for so much more to have some humility because we, we might be wrong in some things. Thinking, no, it's only this or it's only this. I'm telling you, scripture allows for so much more full sense of what we're talking about here. And I think that it's very possible for all these things to be true in some sense, while none of them being false. Okay? So what do we do? What do we do with all that we've just learned? For some of you, this may have felt like a a college course. Maybe you haven't heard any of this before. Several things I want to remind you in way of application. We must remember that the Lord requires utmost holiness. Total perfection. Since we do not have that in and of ourselves, we look to Jesus for salvation and cleansing and refining. By his perfect life, death, and resurrection, we are guaranteed cleansing now and to come forever. He has purified us and will purify us. We must worship and thank him for that because without that, Without this purging of sin, God will not dwell among us, and that's what we need most desperately in our lives. We need God to be with us on friendly terms, on familial terms, because if not, he will be with us in a courtroom setting in which he is judge, jury, uh, prosecutor, and executioner. So we must meet the Lord on these refining terms or we will be judged. And the point of all this purification is so that he may dwell with us and we may dwell with him. Because we have obligations to our God now, all right, based on this priesthood, if we are a priesthood and we are, we stand between God and mankind. What do we do with this? We must bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful people. We do that by presenting the sinless lamb of God to them and saying, Jesus is your salvation, and we explain that. We help them understand God's holiness. We help them understand their sinfulness and why God cannot dwell with them in their current state. And we explain to them Jesus' saving work. As a priest, 
We point to the sacrifice that enables men to dwell with God in unity. We point to Jesus. You are a priest. So I have some questions. Are are you doing the work of reconciliation that God has assigned to you as a royal priest? Do you take your priesthood seriously as a believer? Do you walk in holiness or are you lazy like the people in Malachi's day, those priests? Does Jesus need to refine you more and refine me? Maybe we ought to start praying that he does. When was the last time you prayed for more holiness in your life? To be a better priest for our Lord. Another thing we learn from Malachi is that our worship acts matter. Our worship acts matter. So does the heart of worship, not just the deeds, but the heart behind it. True worship requires a right heart and a right sacrifice. Since we aren't under the old covenant anymore, and since we are under the new covenant, proper worship is through Jesus, for Jesus, and about Jesus. How many times have I talked about Jesus in this passage? Quite a bit, right? He's all over it. Pure worship is through Jesus, for Jesus, about Jesus. It must be centered in Christ. Which means that when we gather together as a corporate body, declarations of Jesus' perfect death and resurrection must take place during our time together or else we did not worship in purity. It is not a Christian service. A Christian worship service is Jesus is left out and all that we talk about is you and how to fix your life and how you can have a better marriage and have better finances and uh, deal with your anger and your temper tantrums and uh, how to raise kids. And all we're doing is giving you self-help tips. As, as if this is some sort of self-help s- uh, service that we have. When we gather, we gather to proclaim Christ and to hear of Christ and to say, I'm a sinner, Christ is my all. And so he's heralded each and every week that we come together. That's pure worship when it's done with a godly heart and with a priestly heart. Sermons, therefore, must be connected, uh, connect the text of the, whatever scripture we're talking about to Christ, or it's not proper teaching, it's not proper worship. Once again, Jesus said that all Scripture pertained to him. Baptism and communion must be done properly as well, too. Why? Because that exalts Christ's saving work. Church, do you see why Christ must be central to what we do when we gather together as a kingdom of priests? If he is not central, then we aren't worshiping correctly. It's not pure. It would be trash to gather for any other reason than to herald Christ. It's a filthy offering if we offer something other than Christ each week. Okay? If we herald, I don't mean we're offering him as a fresh sacrifice each week. I wanted to clarify that, but we are presenting Jesus as the only solution to mankind's problem with God. So we dare not follow the example of Israel and the priests in Malachi's day offering junk to God. The way we prevent that is honing in on Christ and Christ alone each week. And may we delight in him so much so that we overflow with joy and gladness in our prayers, in our singing, in our offering in our listening to the word that makes us wise into salvation. May we observe baptisms correctly and know what they represent. And may we delight in taking communion, all with the Christ word focused. What else did we learn from Malachi in our passage today? That to violate covenant with God, to violate covenant with God like the Israelites and the priests were doing, it's to break covenant with each other. Betrayal was happening in these sins. May we not deal treacherously with each other as the people did in Malachi's day. Church, this is the body of Christ, the temple of the living God that dwells in us on earth. God has visited us, the living temple, just like Malachi foretold of 
when he would visit the second temple. So let me ask you, this is the temple. Do you despise the sanctuary of God? This building is not a sanctuary. You are the sanctuary. You are the temple of God. You are the house of God. You are the people in whom he dwells. Do you despise God's people? You dare not. Jesus gave his life for her. However imperfect she is, he gave his life for her. If you hate believers, you might be damned to hell. If you don't like God's people, you might be on your way to hell because love for God's people, Scripture tells us, proves that God has changed you and brought you into this family. That's very important to get. What do we learn from Malachi? We learn that God wants to dwell with us. God wants to dwell with us. Doesn't that, I hope that encourages you. I don't know if that shapes your worship, but it should. God wants to live with you now and forever in the new creation, in the new heaven on earth. And I pray that you long for that. Or do you cling to the kingdom that you have built here now? And you, God, God, I have all these dreams I want to take place before you come again, so let me get them done first. I promise you the world to come, the salvation that is to come, and the presence of God that is to come, if you could taste it now, you'd jump there now if you could. Okay? This world, there's nothing. What do we just sing? No eye has seen, no ear has heard what is coming, what is coming. Do you see why we, we sing songs like that? To remind us that the Lord is coming again. What do we learn from Malachi? That God cares for Israel, not just the church. I know I'm not able to go, but those of you that are going to get to go to Israel next year, when you go, will you just not look at the land and the sites of Scripture? Will you see the people? Will you see the people that first brought Gentiles the gospel? Will you remember that like Malachi said, God saved an initial group of Israelites and priests and they were dispersed to the nations so that you and I could become part of believing Israel and be grafted in? They were first scattered and dispersed to the nations when the Roman Emperor Nero persecuted Christians in 64 AD and they just they started to scatter the diaspora. You remember though, and you need to remember that un- unbelieving Israel They have rejected the Messiah for the past 2,000 years. There was a remnant of priests and believers that were saved, along with the apostles. They were dispersed, spread the gospel. The majority has been judged. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD, as Jesus prophesied. Knowing that the majority of the Jews and Israelites have rejected Christ, we now, as priests, can go back to unbelieving Israel and preach the gospel so that they can be brought back in. Brought back to the spiritual temple of God, with God dwelling among us and them. Will you pray for their salvation? Those of you visiting Israel next year, will you see the people that God used to shape world history for his glory? The people that need salvation right now? What else do we learn in Malachi? We learn that Jesus does for us what we cannot do. And I pray that you are grateful for that. Your attempts to save yourself are crushed because Jesus has done the work for you. Salvation is not self-purification. Salvation is God consuming your sin and burning it up 
in Jesus Christ. That is how you are purified. The sin must be burnt out and purified and cleansed from you. And he does it through putting it on Jesus and God unleashing his fiery wrath on Jesus in your place. He diverted it away from you and onto Jesus. God burned it up in judgment on Christ. Do you love God for that? Do you want to be a better priest because Jesus has refined you? Church, the coming of God, the coming of the messenger of of the covenant, the coming of Jesus is a two-phase event that Malachi may not have seen completely. The first coming was fulfilled in part, right? In many ways, it happened. The second phase is coming as well, where many things will mimic what happened in the first coming. And so we cling to this. If you're not a Christian and you're hearing all of this, and I confess it's a lot to take in, just know that Jesus alone can save you. That's the ultimate point of this. You need purification that only he can bring. Without this purification, you will be condemned to punishment forever in hell under God's justice. Right now, mercy and grace are knocking at your door. And God is talking to you through his word. If you confess that Jesus is your Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and was crucified for you and buried and risen again, God comes near to you. God comes to dwell in you. If you confess that he is Lord, that it is that you turn from your sin, you turn from your rebellion, and you believe that he alone can save you through his death and resurrection, God will cleanse you of your sin, he will declare you righteous, and he will come and dwell in you. And you will have the greatest gift that you could ever receive, and you receive it now. And one day you will see it in its fullness when you see God face to face. Please turn to him in faith. Trust in him. Christians, we're going to pray now. We're going to worship God in purity. We're going to worship God in purity by declaring that Christ is good, that God is good. And we're going we're to, through this song, revisit Second Chronicles in which the Lord visited his temple in fire and consumed the sacrifice. And I pray that this will remind you that the Lord has visited his spiritual temple and dwells in us now. And I hope that it reminds you that the Lord is coming again to visit creation and dwell in it forever. Would you pray with me?